Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this week in Chicago. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So this week, we're going to be dedicating the entirety of the show to a single data point. And that data point is $3 trillion. That was the valuation reached by Apple this week, making it the first company in history to cross that threshold. And look at Apple. With those gains, it crosses the $3 trillion market cap level. This is just this incredible run that Apple has been on this year, um, really leading the pack, keeping up with the rest of men. Now, I don't think it ends here. We believe this is a $4 trillion market cap by 2025. And at the end of the day, Apple continues to play chess while others are playing checkers. We all know what Apple provides its customers. Many of our listeners may be accessing this podcast on an Apple iPhone. But yeah, we wanted to take a segment to zoom out and consider Apple as an economic and political player in its own right. So, Adam, what sort of entrepreneurship exactly does Apple's success represent? I mean... When I was thinking about this, I was wondering, I mean, has it specialized in innovating goods exactly? You know, it struck me that smartphones existed, for example, prior to the iPhone. Or on the other hand, has it specialized in some production process? Although its products aren't really priced in a way to maximize its consumer base. So if it's neither of those, I mean, does the classical concept of entrepreneurship include driving innovations of refinement and taste, as I guess anyone would say Apple is managed to do? Yeah, this is the sort of abiding question about Apple. What is the secret of this you know, extraordinary company's success? Um, I think if you go back to the early stages of the company, um, you know, the knock was in a sense that they weren't the most innovative, that they were, however, geniuses at marketing. And certainly I'm, I'm old enough to remember the incredible impact that the first Apple Macs made. And I mean, amongst impressionable kids at the time, it was just the hottest thing imaginable somehow like in my mind it's segued with star wars and the kind of you know the the come comeback of america in the 1980s i think by the time we get to the 90s that product design dominance has really come very much to the fore you've got these legendary fingers like ive i don't know whether it's Joni or johnny ive the mm. you know the brilliant designer of so many of the apple products from the late 90s onwards and that's a really dominant feature there's always been the hard-nosed element of Apple, which was the you know fact that it was a it was a closed software hardware environment, unlike the open architecture of the PC. So there was always that kind of feature that they were tough, tough, tough competitors and out to gain to build moats, as Warren Buffett would call it. But then I do think that in the latest generation, and really with Tim Cook and the um, iPhone, the central story of the firm, and it's really an extraordinary story, is indeed the manufacturing prowess. I mean, that's hmm. really what sets Apple apart from all of its competitors is this extraordinary ecosystem of manufacturing that they've created that enables them to mass produce this extraordinarily sophisticated combination of software and hardware, um, above all from a manufacturing base in China but with a huge amount of proprietary technology that's going into the manufacturing process. So I think they're really up there with Henry Ford. You know, there was nothing ever particularly exciting about the mm. Model T from a design point of view and engineering terms. It was 
almost willfully crude, but the genius was the mass production. And I think that's the underplayed story with Apple. It's a little bit unsexy and quite problematic in many ways. But if you want to know what really gives them this key dominant position, it's it's that. It's this incredibly refined, ramified um, network. Um, outsourcing doesn't really do it do it justice. It's a integrated global production system. So I definitely want to dig into that relationship with its producers. But first, I wanted to ask about the relationship between Apple and the U.S. government. I mean, does Apple play a role in the U.S. government the way that other national champion corporations do in other countries? Or is Apple distinct from other corporate giants when it comes to corporate government relations? Because it's not exactly an industrial labor behemoth, domestically at least. Yeah, the role of national champions in relation to the US is a little complicated because the US economy is just so massive. I mean, thinking about it, there was a period where you could say that Detroit was sort of synonymous with America and American power. You know, famously, what's good for GM is good for America, and maybe it's the other way around. What's good for America is good for GM. Like a succession of of car executives were secretaries of state around the Pentagon, you know, so there was a real kind of merger between Detroit and American power. But I think that's a really, there's a peculiar phase in the history of the US. In the present period, you'd be hard pressed to say, you know, it's not like a Samsung with Korea or the German car industry with Germany. The economy is simply too big and too diversified, you know, as big as the American banks are. They're all, there's too many of them and they're too small relative to American GDP to be like UBS which is with Switzerland now. And the other thing about Apple is it really is a consumer-facing company. I mean, it, it makes goods which American public servants buy, but it, it isn't like it's providing backbone services like a Google, for instance, or you know deep technological products. I mean, there's huge engineering expertise in the chips on the Apple phones, but you know, it isn't a major leader in AI, for instance, it has AI elements in its business, but it isn't the dominant player in that zone. It's not an NVIDIA, for instance, which is just doing this, you know, face of God's level kind of uh, engineering. Not that the engineering of an iPhone's anything, you know, it's no slouch, but it's, it's not that kind of, I think, Pentagon relevant firm. And the position it's adopted with regard to the demands of the American security services is nothing short of non-cooperative, right? So there was this famous standoff between Apple and the FBI in 2015, 2016, where Apple basically refused to cooperate with American government demands that it crack the encryption on its own phones. And the American government ended up hiring hackers, possibly with the assistance of Israeli intelligence, to break into one of Apple's phones. And then this thing repeated in 2020, um, and it's, it straddles, it's a very unusual company in that sense. It truly is, I think, an, an, uh, an epitome of a kind of globalized vision of where corporations stands in relation to, 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 to good national governments. Um, it, it actually had engaged in negotiations with the Chinese to demonstrate to the Chinese that, that there are no backdoor entrances into Apple's technology. So, you know, everyone has, <laughs> there's a sort of equal opportunities approach to denying access to everyone. I mean, it's well known that if you travel in China, the safest phone that you can take is an, is an Apple, but it's also clearly the case that America's security services have a hard time getting into it as well. So it's, um, it's an interesting 
no, no one would no one would accuse Apple of being disloyal. I think though Trump periodically did. Barr, uh, his attorney general, general had a go, uh, but it's certainly not straightforwardly aligned in the military-industrial complex in the way that you might expect. Hmm. Another thing about Apple is that it famously has huge cash reserves, and to some extent, it's poured that money into other tech projects that have come to fruition. But isn't it also in a strong position to become an enormous financial institution of its own? I mean, why would or wouldn't it be sensible for Apple to focus on becoming a financial business? Yeah, I mean, it's got it's got so much more money than a bank, right? Because mm. because uh, the 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 money that when we talk about bank balance sheets, it's almost all borrowed. You know, whether borrowed in a commercial money market or borrowed from depositors. And when we put our money in the bank, after all, we're lending it to the bank. They don't like saying that to us, but that's exactly what's going on. Whereas Apple is actually just sitting on piles of cash, hmm. um, you know, which it's earned in, in profit. So it's a, it's a vastly stronger company than structurally stronger than, than any bank, really. Um, it has also huge amounts of data. And it is, of course, now involved in payments technology. And so, yes, there's been a hookup now in the last 12 months between Apple and Goldman Sachs. And they've started offering savings products to encourage people to put money onto the accounts, which they'll then access by way of Apple Pay. There is even a buy now, pay later facility that Apple offers. But this is really characteristic of Apple. That that's just them putting some of their huge cash pile to good use. You know, normally a bank would offer you this, you know, buy now, pay later, but the bank would borrow the money to lend you the money so that you can then pay it a greater interest margin. Apple is literally just sitting on the cash. So it might as well lend it to various customers. So I think the idea absolutely is, it's, I think, uncertain how big a piece of the Apple ecosystem it will be, but the combination of the wallet, the payments facility, the cash loan lending that they can do, they're in a position to really build a very important position in finance. The, the question is, why would they do it? And as a business, it's much less attractive than the one they're already in. So... The, the payoff would presumably be that if you if all of your domestic finances are in an Apple ecosystem, you're much less likely to swap to some other person other company's phone. So I would have thought the the logic here is that you use the you use the financial integration of your customers, not to earn huge margins on that per se. Apple's interest rates it's offering on these savings accounts are quite attractive. You wouldn't imagine it becoming like a maybe a car company, which for a long time made a lot of money on various types of higher purchase lend, you know, leasing schemes. It would probably be more a mechanism for consolidating Apple's grip more comprehensively on its customers' lives. That kind of that kind of conception, I think, um, would be where it would fit in. It doesn't you know if you're comparing businesses like there's nothing for Apple to envy about the mm. business that Goldman Sachs is in. <laughs> Like seriously, like why would they want to do that? The only reason they'd want to do that is <coughs> because it means people are much more likely to buy their phones and everything else that Apple wants to sell us on that side of the line business. Yeah, when you put it that way, it's hard to appreciate just how strong the Apple business is that it can sort of, yeah, look down its nose on all these other banks. It doesn't even need to do that and it's just in an extraordinary position, I guess. Yeah. So... If we use Apple, say, as a case study for the process of globalization, I mean, what exactly would it have to teach us about this era of global economics? I mean, on one hand, Apple's globalization 
seems to be about the rising fortunes of the rest of the world. Uh, you know, you mentioned the outsourcing of labor to contractors that are in developing markets, etc. On another level, though, Apple is a company that has exploited globalization to evade responsibility, it seems like, on a number of ways, you know, setting up global headquarters to evade taxation. Are these aspects of globalization inseparable in some way, or is one a kind of truer depiction of what globalization has really been about? Yeah, I mean, on the on the globalization as bringing development to the world point, it's also, of course, crucial to emphasize that for Apple, China is not just a manufacturing center, it's also a huge market. Like they are some of the most demanding, tech savvy, fashion conscious consumers in the world. I think that they account for about 25% of Apple's sales. So so genuine, you know, making it really is in that sense a kind of global Fordism in the way that Ford, you know, imagined paying his workers well enough for them to buy the cars. Apple doesn't necessarily pay its workers well enough to for them to be able to afford apples in China, but they are part of a growth miracle in China from which from which Apple benefits both on the side of production and consumption. Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, they kind of say it on the back of the phone, right? I mean, it's designed in California, it's manufactured in China. The one thing they don't add is that they pay their taxes through Ireland. And um, that's, uh, that's a key element of their business design. So the way it works essentially is that Foxconn pays Apple's subsidiary in Ireland for the which holds all of the IP for the privilege of manufacturing according to the Apple blueprints in China right and so then and then the profits of the bit that they decide to repatriate to the US is then paid as a dividend from the Irish branch to the US branch which then allows them to you know reward their shareholders in the US and of course the shareholders in the US view the not just the US branch of the company which is really quite a light footprint, but they view the entire global corporation and whatever's accumulating on Apple Inc. Global's balance sheet is then credited in this extraordinary stock market valuation in the US without becoming taxable in the US or without necessarily requiring Apple to employ a lot of people in the US. So the Irish branch of Apple, which is based in Cork, has 56,000 employees worldwide, of which only 6,000 are actually in Ireland. Apple US employs tens of thousands of people. And then there is the manufacturing arm, which is like half a million, but they're not on Apple's books. And they're sitting in, they work via largely via Foxconn and, and the subcontractors they use in, in China. So it's, it's absolutely an indication of just how much in, in Apple is the quintessential global coordinating and uh, firm. It really is, you know, surpassing now, obviously, the global car companies, which through the middle of the 20th century were really the quintessential globalizing corporates. Uh, Apple is really the key player. I think, you know, in fairness to them on tax, I mean, obviously, at one level, it's scandalous that they channel their profits in this way, but the door is open to them by the political decisions of the governments in the respective jurisdictions, right? If, I mean, Apple is not in the business of breaking the law. It doesn't need to break the law to make money. It's, you know, that's, that's really somebody else's game. That's a pretty poor game if you have to do that. Apple is just an incredibly smart company. And so if you open the door to it to pursue these tax efficient strategies, it, you know, of course, it will take advantage of them. And it can afford the best legal advice and the best accounting advice in the world. And so, in fact, it's it, the Irish strategy proved to be bombproof legally, right? The European Commission wanted to force them 
to pay 14 billion euros worth of tax to the Irish government. The Irish government is so keen to have um, uh, Apple in Ireland that it didn't want the money. Um, the European Commission tried to force Apple to pay and they lost the legal case um, because, in fact, Apple's position was, in the first round anyway, Apple's position was 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 watertight. And, and that, unsurprisingly, right? I mean, somebody like Tim Cook is not going to say, oh, well, give it a, you know, give it a go. Maybe it'll turn out to be a huge illegal scam. No, I mean, they, they're for real. So... They they just take advantage. What needs to change is is the underlying regulation. What needs to change hmm. is the is the underlying system of taxation. <clears throat> and I don't think there's any doubt that if you confront them with a clear set of you know rules on this, that they will change. Will they lobby against that? Of course, they'll lobby against that, and they do quite handsomely. They're a significant lobbyist, and it's pretty clear that the Janet Yellen pushed minimum global corporate tax idea was a way of the American government avoiding, you know, having to do tougher, more politically amb- embarrassing strategies of, you know, clawing back tax revenue some other way, which would be embarrassing both for America's European allies and for America's corporates. So the idea was you just raise the level everywhere and then they can keep their strategies as they are, but there'll be less, there'll be less, um, you know, there'll be less circumvention. Um mm. But it's a, it's a matter of governments really being willing to bite the bullet. Um, and the success story of Apple in and of itself is a kind of shield against that. Like, who would want to mess with that kind of success? Interesting, yeah. I mean, maybe in some ways it sounds like Apple could be on the wrong side of what people are referring to as Bidenomics. Obviously, you mentioned Janet Yellen's corporate tax policies. But beyond that, this sort of industrial policy push where trying to make the location of these firms and the labor, et cetera, relevant to these policy questions and to economic policy questions. It seems like maybe a challenge, at least, to Apple. Uh, I don't know if they've suffered at all from Biden's administration, but it does seem like there's friction there, at least with that vision of economics. Well, there was with Trump, because Trump had this moment where he said, we're going to make them, you know, we're going to, I'm going to make sure this company makes these goddamn computers in the mm. United States. And... Um, the the problem is the ecosystem of production, right? The problem is the supply chain itself. It's all very well to say that. It's quite another to actually make it work. Okay, we're going to take a break right here, but we will be right back to continue talking about Apple. Okay, welcome back. We are still talking about the economics of Apple. Yeah, so, I mean, how has Apple managed its relationship with Foxconn, this company that helps manage its manufacturing labor in China? How has it managed that relationship more generally? It does seem like a very remarkable relation at the heart of Apple's success. So, you know, how has Apple managed all the apparent downsides or potential downsides of that kind of arm's length relationship to its own labor force? Yeah, it's really, I think the crucial thing is to not think of this as simple subcontracting or outsourcing or something like that, let alone the kind of classic, small scale consumer good um, model where you take some blueprint from the West to a manufacturing hub in China and basically, you know, sit in a local bar and say, who can make me this? Like that, that is not how this relationship has worked. I mean, it really is a symbiotic relationship, especially in the era of Tim Cook. 
So the Apple practice has basically been to invest on a huge scale in their relationship with Chinese manufacturers. And starting in the early 2000s with an incredible investment in various types of machining technology, you know, the, the beautiful cases that everyone likes of the laptops. I, I'll never forget my first impression of holding it because I'm kind of interested in metalworking and just picking the thing up and realizing it's milled out of a single chunk of metal, right? This is not an assembled object. It's, it's cut out. Now, to do that, you need incredibly sophisticated computer, numerical controlled machine tools, basically. And they're really expensive, tens, tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a pop. And to mass manufacture, Apple basically upfront purchased the entire global supply of certain milling machines so as to be able to make these objects. Then they supply them to their subcontractors, train them up. So there are literally hundreds of thousands of Chinese companies now which are certified to the maximum level. There's this international agency which does certification for quality production. And there are literally 10 times more firms in China that are certified at that level than in any Western economy, including the United States, 10 times more. So there's this huge ecosystem of incredibly high skilled, high quality production, which Apple has more than any company in the world fostered. And Foxconn is at the heart of that. They were a company that was putting together, I don't know if they remember that, that generation of Apple computers that were kind of funky, multicolored. They were look like, looked like candy or something like that. And Foxconn started making those. And at that point, they were a one, two, three billion dollar a year firm. And then really what they got was the contract for the early iPhones. And they hustled Apple into expanding production in China and convincing people in the Nokia era, people just didn't believe that the manufacturing could be done on this scale in China. And Foxconn basically said, no, we can absolutely do this. We'll build two campuses. We think you're underestimating the scale of production you need to go to. We've got the local political contacts. We can get this done. Leave it to us. We will mobilize the workers that you need. Apple then says, right, these people need to be trained in the way that we require. Apple boasts about having provided safety trading to 26 million Chinese workers because they cycle through so quickly. Everyone knows it's a bit like Ford again that the you know, conditions on these production lines are very, very arduous. You know, they, Foxconn will cycle, will have at various points 300% attrition rate during a year. So it literally has to train up a workforce two or three times a year. Apple worked with them to enable this to happen. And that's really the story of this symbiosis between the two firms. This is genuinely a co-produced integrated production system, not a Western firm with a blueprint tearing up in China and saying, build me this, and then you know, haphazardly taking or not taking whatever comes out of the system. Apple has invested more in the manufacturing equipment installed in China than in any of its office buildings or any facility that it has in the West. So it's basically upfront finance, these giant hyper-complex factories. Now, one of the effects of this is that Apple is de facto, the employer of hundreds of thousands of relatively low paid, very hard uh, workers working in very tough conditions in dormitory accommodation, recruited from the migrant mass migrant labor force in China. And unsurprisingly, this meant that it was you know, responsible directly or indirectly for waves of, of, of discontent sweeping through that workforce, a rash of suicides that happened in Foxconn in the early 2010s. And then serious labor disputes 
um, which have erupted and notably erupted around around um, COVID, right? The A4 revolution in China last year, amongst other things, centered on production sites of Foxconn. So, you know, at that level, it's really at the the hub. But again, Apple manages this cooperatively with Taiwanese collaborators like Foxconn, but then also with the local Chinese authorities who treated Apple throughout the COVID epidemic as the absolute priority in the production system. Like part of Xi's pivot in February 2020 to restart production was about ensuring that Apple's lines didn't, you know, Tesla and Apple are the two standout Western companies that really have sway over Chinese decision making, much more than JP Morgan or somebody like that. The money people who would love to do more business in China, but aren't really integral to the Chinese economy. Whereas Fox, whereas uh, Apple really, really is a, a key element, and so Foxconn has really been the mediator in this in this very complex and highly political chain. Hmm. I mean, theoretically, could Apple buy Foxconn at some point if it's so dependent on its labor? Is that even like a, a well, that's that not a... their business model, right? Their business yeah. model is to manage these kind of partnerships and hmm. to delegate, and that's a that's exactly what they don't want yeah. to be, yeah. right? Um, and don't need to be because they've made it work so well this way. It would just seem to be a risk, I guess, uh, somehow of its own, if there's a sort of political change in China or something. I don't know. Well, no, I mean, the, the China risk is for Apple. This is the astonishing thing about the $3 trillion valuation. And with the new virtual reality headset, that entire production chain is based in China too. Absolutely mm. 100% in China. So, you know, if that's their new big technological breakthrough, it totally replicates the Tim Cook China-based supply chain story. And why should they go anywhere else, right? I mean, sure, India is attractive for political reasons, but the chances of being able in any foreseeable future to really build a competitive chain and ecosystem there are slight, and they know it. Everyone is looking for those options, but the moves on Apple's part are relatively modest in quantitative terms. The reason they stay in the way they do is that Foxconn gives them at least one layer of mediation, right? Mm. They're, not, they're not immediately the employer of hundreds of thousands of Chinese. So finally, I wanted to ask, why do you think we generally think of Apple as liberal? I mean, this seems to be a pretty amazing marketing feat, given everything we've just discussed, its record on taxes, labor rights, etc. I mean, what is the substance of this political image making? And is this where Apple's vaunted aesthetics come in to give it a kind of liberal reputation? Yeah, I was thinking about this question about its aesthetics. I think that's actually really not a, is a really important point. I can't, I can't quite think through how the sleekness of these objects like fits into, but it does in my mind very closely associate with a kind of neo-Californian you know, enthusiasm of the 90s and the 2000s. Um, I don't think anyone who works inside Apple would um, be under any illusions about liberalism as such, right? I mean, it's liberal in that it emphasizes privacy as an absolutely prime value, but the corporation itself is incredibly tightly run, very tightly managed. They run regular security sweeps across the company to prevent leaking. It is a very, very tight ship indeed. I mean, it was described in one profile uh, in a Western magazine as a sort of liberal version of China. So that being the kind of the ideal of the company. I mean, that doesn't mean that it suppresses the free speech of its of its staff. And they are on the liberal end of the Californian spectrum, those based in the US. So, you know, there are tech companies like Qualcomm, for instance, the, the chip manufacturer, which are pretty much evenly split 50-50 Republican-Democrat. 
There's Peter Thiel's outfit, which of course is is hard right leaning. But no, Apple is like most other, like you know the 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 tech mm. firms, the Netflixes, and so on, an eighty to ninety percent Democrat donating business. Um, they were in the crosshairs of some of Trump's early rhetoric, but then in fact they built a very workable relationship with with Trump. Tim Cook was one of the tech executives who had the closest relationship with Trump by the end. Um, Trump gave him this moniker, Tim Apple, and Cook, I mean, I think it was probably just a, you know, a slip on Trump's part, but apparently Tim Cook, uh, you know, changed his name on Twitter to to Tim Apple, um, you know, in homage to the president. And he, they did manage to get Apple exempted from any of Trump's tariffs, right? So, you know, there was a fear that that um, Apple's tech would be subject to the to the Trump China tariff, and that didn't happen. So, you know, they they play the policy, not the politician. I think that's the line from the company. Um, and I have to say, as a European, you know, because I grew up in, I was actually I worked for IBM for a year, and I grew up in computers in the eighties and nineties in Berlin, where there was this strong you know, left hacker, you know, the global hacker scene, the politics of hacking is really very German in this period, the Chaos Computer Club and these kind of people. And they wouldn't have gone anywhere near an Apple hmm. because it being a closed architecture, right? The It was clearly a giant corporate lock-in. And we couldn't ever really quite figure out why, you know, supposedly lefty Americans were falling for this corporate essentially monopolistic play. Um, it took me a long time, as my family will attest, to like, you know, I've only been on Apple for like just, you know, 15, no, no, not quite 15 years, which by the standards of a liberal academic is very late adopter, right? And um, it was in the end, it was the design. It was the the slimness of the MacBook Air. <laughs> just that did it for me. I just couldn't resist that. Um, you know, that knife-edge, steely kind of thing was just irresistible. I, I do wonder if this is where the aesthetics do come in, though, because, yeah, somehow there's an association between the sleek aesthetics and some sense of open-mindedness. And I think that association has been made by the company explicitly. I remember there was an advertising campaign, Think Different, in the 90s, right. uh, yeah, where yeah. they sort of tried yeah. to associate with free thinkers, etc. Yeah. And it's funny how that open-mindedness as a sort of contentless idea, you know, is enough to give one a sense that there is something yeah. goodwill there, even if all the other substance of the politics are regressive or conservative, as any corporation, I suppose, would be in protecting its interests. But but that's a, it's, a, it's quite a coup to sort of say, we're open-minded, the aesthetics, we're open-minded, we associate ourselves with open-minded people, and that's enough to be liberal i mean maybe that's more an indictment of liberalism i don't know i was gonna you know. say i know <laughs> i know some left-wing friends would say exactly. precisely exactly exactly <laughs> you nailed it Cap. that's exactly <laughs> what it is it's about as liberal and free thinking as a macbook air <laughs> sharp enough to cut your head off in an accident i'm no, glad we've uh you nailed it. we've uh you know backfilled our way to socialism here um okay well we do have to end up here anyway but I suspect this won't be the last time we are talking about trillions of dollars. We've been talking about starting maybe an occasional series called Trillion or X Trillion because that threshold struck us as an important one in various contexts. So stick with us in the weeks ahead and uh, yeah, we may be talking about 
things on this scale again. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.